Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to Damages. I'm Amy Westervelt. Last episode, we heard about ecocide and the drive to formally declare it a crime prosecutable in international courts. Jojo Meta talked to us about how the whole point is to prevent companies from behaving badly in the first place, not to punish them later in courts. Today, we're coming at it from the other end of the spectrum. We're going to talk about international arbitration, a very boring phrase that is actually a huge problem for climate action. When countries sign on to free trade agreements or investment treaties with other countries, they often agree to something called arbitration. This is handled by a couple of different types of arbitral tribunals. Sounds like a court, right? Not an official court, not at all, but has an enormous amount of power. Here's what happens. In countries that are signed on to these treaties, if a company has started to do business there and the country changes its laws. So for example, if a mining company starts to mine for lithium in Chile and all of a sudden, Chile decides that it's going to apply some limits to lithium mining. That company can sue the government of Chile for profits that it might have lost or for investments that it made that are now not worth anything. This has happened multiple times with environmental laws, and there is a growing concern that it will happen more as more and more governments take action to curb climate change. In fact, it has already happened, and shockingly, it was a complaint made against the United States of all places, not really known as a climate leader, us. But when President Biden took office and finally canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, the Canadian company working on that pipeline filed an arbitral complaint. They said that the cancellation of that pipeline cost them billions of dollars in losses, and the U.S. government should pay those losses back. That complaint has not gone in front of a tribunal panel yet, but it will. And when it does, it will be judged by three people, one of which the company gets to pick. The other two are not necessarily experts in any field other than arbitration. And they will decide, most likely in a totally closed, not at all transparent process, whether or not the U.S. government has to pay this Canadian company for having the audacity of actually enforcing its environmental laws and shutting down a pipeline that would have come with a large amount of climate impacts and very little use for American citizens. 
Again, that's just one example. There are many, many examples. Today, I'm joined by Marcos Orellana. He is the UN Special Rapporteur on Toxics and Human Rights. He is also an adjunct professor at the George Washington University Law School and a former lawyer. He worked for years and years helping countries defend themselves in these arbitral tribunals. In fact, he was the very first person I ever interviewed on a story that I did on this subject years ago about a gold mine in El Salvador that had been put on hold because of some environmental laws and wound up in an arbitral tribunal. That conversation is coming up right after this quick break. I'd love to have you start with sort of a general kind of what is international arbitration and how how is it used by American companies? Sure, sure. At its core, international investment arbitration is a system that allows corporations to sue states for damages before panels of arbitrators. These days, uh, most arbitration cases are uh, brought under international treaties on investment protection. These instruments uh, typically grant corporations the right to claim compensation. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. Go to Earth breeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Does it make sense to you that the same company that controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? How about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between these guys and your online activity. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Every site you visit, video you watch, message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you use ExpressVPN on your devices, the software hides your IP address. 
that's something that big tech uses to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. This has become sadly very important in my line of work. It's also why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, TechRadar, and a lot of other sites. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. You download the app, it's very easy to install. You tap a button and then you're protected. I like hardly even think about it anymore and it's just working away in the background on all my devices. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash drilled. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash drilled to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash drilled right now to learn more. in cases where the government takes a measure that breaches the standards of protection in the treaty and that results in economic loss for the investor. Uh, Arbitral tribunals are typically composed by three panelists. One of the panelists is uh, uh, appointed by, uh, by the corporation, the claimant. The, the, in theory, as, as the World Bank and capital exporting countries often argue, international investment arbitration helps foster economic development in, deep, in developing countries. And they, it does so by building confidence in foreign investors. It's, a, it's argued that it is a tool to build confidence because foreign investors may be more inclined to do business in countries that may be unstable or risky, if they have legal security in case something goes wrong. It is argued that these international financial flows, capital investments, thus contribute to development uh, because otherwise uh, these countries would not receive uh, this capital and would not benefit from uh, the concessions, the works, the infrastructure or the business from foreign investors. That's the theory. In practice, however, corporations are using the arbitration system to discipline governments for their own interests. And this is often done at the expense of the public interest. How does this work or how does this happen? Well, in the arbitrations, corporations often argue that their expectations for profit have been frustrated, that they have been frustrated by the government that adopts a law or a decision or a regulation, and they, the corporations demand to be compensated for the profits they expected to make. Uh, since arbitral awards can run up to tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, and since even the legal fees involved, uh, the council and the costs of the arbitration, it can run into the millions of dollars, this puts a lot of pressure on government officials to uh, pass, to adopt, uh, or even maintain public interest uh, measures. Let's recall that, uh, that many of the respondent states in these cases 
they have limited budgets. There might be small developing countries that are that are facing uh, a set of priorities, competing priorities, and they have to struggle to satisfy health and education and at times food and water and environmental protection. And so talking about tens of millions of dollars of costs can really put um, a dent into the uh, budget of a, of a state. Um, so th those are the, the basic contours. The international investment arbitration can be described as a private system of adjudication that decides on, on the propriety of governmental measures, but it lacks the safeguards for accountability and transparency that characterize constitutional democracies governed by the rule of law. Uh, if we look back in time, in its origins, international investment arbitration came to replace colonial systems, uh, colonial systems of extraction, of, of domination. When, uh, when the former colonies acquired independence in, in the advent of decolonization, largely after the Second World War and the advent of the United Nations, the former imperial powers needed a legal system to protect the economic interests of their corporations. And international investment arbitration offered such an alternative. Uh, today, in this current day of age, many in civil society see the, the arbitration regime as, uh, as yet another tool of corporate globalization. Uh, and this is because when governments regulate in the public interest, they become the targets of corporations that utilize the arbitration system to challenge those acts uh, of authority. Uh, I would uh, comment that um, this is particularly problematic in the age of climate change because uh, governments must reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases um, to face the climate emergency, the existential risks that flow from, uh, from climate change. And of course, this change in direction affects the expectations and the interests of the oil and gas, uh, of the oil and gas industry. Um, one, one last thing I'd comment on is, is the tension that um, in practice uh, arises between international investment arbitration and international human rights. And this is because international law has come to recognize how a clean and healthy environment is indispensable for the enjoyment of human rights. The investment arbitration system, however, puts an obstacle to the abilities of governments to take measures to transition to, towards sustainable development and to secure respect and protection of the fundamental right to live in a healthy environment. I'd love to have you maybe give an example of how, you know, how a company might use this to, for example, take a country to court over an environmental law that they don't like. <laughs> um, I don't know if you have like a good case example that you could share. Yeah, there, there are many examples of, uh, of uh, states uh, passing environmental laws and then being taken to court by, by uh, corporations that are dissatisfied 
by by those laws. Um, uh, one example comes to mind concerns hazardous wastes in in Mexico. The, the so-called TechMed case it ex- exemplifies the issues that arise in in these arbitrations. In in that case, the, the a hazardous waste confinement was located. In uh, in the downtown uh, Hermosillo in in Mexico, and the government was concerned, and the people around the confinement were concerned that uh, the tr- trucks uh, going day and night in and out of the confinement with these hazardous wastes were posing a, a risk to um, to the environment and to the health of of the population. The company in question uh, began to enlarge the confinement without having the the necessary permits, and uh, as a result, it was uh, it was fined. It was uh, the, there were proceedings by the administrative um, agencies in Mexico, and and the government uh, began to study the possibility of moving this confinement uh, outside of the of the of downtown area. Uh, laws were passed that required that uh, hazardous waste confinement be located from um, urban centers, and uh, and the company, however, the negotiations with the company did not progress very far. Eventually, the government decided that it would not renew the concession for the operation of the hazardous waste confinement, and at that time, the company took the government to court, to the uh, arbitral system. And that's when the arbitrators uh, replace the role of of domestic courts uh, and begin to apply loosely defined treaty standards. They eventually considered that uh, the corporation had an expectation to make a profit out of its investment. It was a Spanish corporation, but that that Profit had been frustrated by the measures that had been taken by the government to protect uh, the people around the confinement. Should also comment that in that specific case, the the community mobilized. They began to protest the the trucks uh, the, against the uh, illegal expansion and so forth. And and so the government was also giving expression to the uh, the concerns and the interests of of the people that uh, that were mobilizing the the tribunal however considered that those protests could not be foreseen and that uh, they were uh, they did not have a scientific basis there was no evidence that hazardous waste had indeed compromised the health of the population and in so doing then they uh, they declared that Mexico was liable to pay the company millions of dollars for the measures it had taken. So this again goes to show how um, in a domestic court the balancing of uh, the public health, the environmental issues, the human rights issues would have received a different light than the unidirectional character of the arbitration that focuses on the corporation and whether the government's measure has frustrated its expectations. Okay, so I know that you are not 
involved in this Chevron Ecuador case, but as someone who you know knows this system well and has seen lots of different types of cases, I'm curious just when and if it popped up on your radar as a, an international arbitration kind of expert and, and what um, your thoughts are on that case in, in particular and how it kind of played out. This is a massive case. It's a massive case. Uh, the, the, the arbitration is just one of the forums where this uh, case has been litigated. The arbitration itself spans thousands of pages, numerous awards and procedural decisions. Prior to the arbitration, there had been litigation in, in federal court in New York for nine years. There was also litigation in, in Lago Agri in, in Ecuador and trial litigation, appellate court litigation, Supreme Court litigation uh, in Ecuador. The Ecuadorian Constitutional Court was also seized. There has been litigation in Argentina, Brazil, Canada, the Netherlands, the International Criminal Court received a, a letter as well. And there's still ongoing litigation by Chevron against the Plaintiff's Counsel uh, in the United States. So that that's perhaps one first observation about how broad and how complex the massive, and it goes to show how difficult it is to hold a big oil company accountable for environmental harm. Chevron has spent hundreds of millions of dollars in legal fees. Those monies could have been used to prevent environmental harm or to clean up uh, the pollution. How does it compare to other cases? Well, one thing I would notice that the arbitral system is opaque. It is known for its lack of transparency. This is a big problem because the arbitrations, as, uh, as we were discussing, they involve the public interest. They involve the scrutiny of public law measures. And so they should be heard under the safeguards of transparency and accountability that characterize uh, due process and the rule of law. But these arbitrations often are conducted behind closed doors without the public having access to the proceedings. That's, that being said, however, in some cases, high-profile cases involving environmental protection measures, the arbitrations have opened up and they have allowed for public hearings and they have allowed for the public to uh, present so-called amicus curiae briefs. This is a Latin term for a a written brief that uh, presents a perspective that may not have been developed by the disputing parties and that is helpful for the tribunal to receive. In this case, however, in in the Chevron Ecuador case, hearings were held behind closed doors. Civil society was not allowed to intervene as amici. Uh, and from that angle, the outcome in favor of, of Chevron is, uh, is not surprising. But all that said, however, the outcome is surprising in some aspects. And one of the aspects that I think is, has um, to some degree startled a number of observers is the far-reaching character of, uh, of the awards. And this is because the the arbitration system is often sold to policymakers and to to the public as one of uh, of simple compensation for loss. The bottom line is it is argued is that if a foreign investor suffers economic harm 
because of something that the government did, then it should be compensated. And the example, the caricature even, that's often presented is uh, a corporation owns a mine that is uh, expropriated by a military junta that uh, gives the property to the to the the nephew of the general in power then of course the company should receive uh, compensation but that's not what's going on that's not what went on in this case and not generally what's going on in the field in this case the panel the arbitral panel crafted a range of remedies that go well beyond the issue of compensation uh, for loss. It directed uh, Ecuador to preclude enforcement of the judgment of its national courts. Uh, So preclude enforcement, that shows how deep this system penetrates the sovereignty of the state. The, The panel also declared that Ecuador would be liable to Chevron for any recovery that uh, the plaintiffs in the Lago Agrio litigation managed to obtain. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if, 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 the, uh, if the Lago Agrio plaintiffs are able to enforce the judgment rendered by the Ecuadorian courts in some jurisdiction around the world where they can find Chevron's assets, Ecuador would be liable to Chevron for any recovery that the plaintiffs make. Wow. Yeah, it is not just an award that, uh, as typically, that the state has uh, adopted measure X. This measure has caused Y harm, and uh, we order, the tribunal orders the state to pay uh, $50 million to the company. That's not what's, what's happening here. So, so one of the things that this shows is that uh, international investment arbitration is not just about money. It is foremost about governance. Who takes decisions and for whom? Who benefits from those decisions? So in that sense, it is a system that removes the scrutiny of governmental measures from courts of law and places it in the hands of three arbitrators. In this specific case, one of the arbitrators uh, often sits in arbitral panels because he's appointed by corporations. Let's recall that uh, typically there are three arbitrators and the corporation, the foreign investor, gets to appoint one of the arbitrators. So in that sense, it was no surprise that this person would favor Chevron's interest. The other two arbitrators, one, a commercial lawyer who who recently passed away, and so may he rest in peace, and the other, an an international law professor. So I think it's it's fair that we can ask, can, can we expect two white males sitting thousands of miles away from the lands polluted by Texaco to appreciate the significance for the indigenous peoples that lived in those territories of the environmental destruction that Texaco caused in the 1970s in Ecuador. I think that their decision shows that they did not. They did not so appreciate the significance. That the arbitrators simply focused on Chevron and its narrative in disregard of the environmental and human rights calamity caused by Texaco 
And, and to be fair, Texaco and Petro Ecuador, I think that the, the disregard for this calamity shows the unidirectional character of the investment arbitration regime, a regime that focuses on the corporation's interests and its narrative and does not regard uh, the environment and, and, and human rights. Uh, perhaps I, I could uh, elaborate on an example to illustrate this point. Yeah, that would be great. And then I do want to have you talk about, you know, just how this undermines the Ecuadorian constitution and the right to a healthy environment. And I mean, like just in general, undermines country's sovereignty. I mean, you've kind of made that point a, a few different ways already, but I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on um, the Ecuadorian constitution in particular. That is exactly one of the issues that uh, that the arbitral tribunal addressed. Now, in a in a democracy, one would expect uh, by design a constitutional question to be addressed by a constitutional court, but in this instance, there was an issue concerning uh, a contract between Texaco and the Ministry of Mines in representation of the government that raised this issue and, and the arbitration. So perhaps to, to step back, I think this is a good example. In one of their awards, the arbitrators set out to uh, interpret the right to a healthy environment in, the, uh, in Ecuador's constitution. Chevron argued that uh, it had been released from liability for collective claims under the right to a healthy environment by virtue of a release contract that had been concluded between Ecuador and Texaco. Texaco would carry out some remediation work in exchange of release for liability from the state and Petro-Ecuador. Uh, but this, the scope of work in this contract was limited. Uh, this left sources, areas of contamination unremedied. There's evidence that indicates serious shortcomings in the remediation efforts that were actually carried out. Despite all this, in 1998, Ecuador approved Texaco's works and released it from liability related to contamination from the oil operations. So this is the the contract and the release that uh, Chevron argued was at issue in this case and precluded the exercise of jurisdiction by Ecuadorian courts of claims concerning the collective dimensions of the right to a healthy environment. And so it asked the arbitral tribunal to declare so and declare that Ecuador, by allowing its courts to exercise jurisdiction, was violating the contract and the bilateral investment treaty between the United States and uh, and Ecuador. The tribunal approached this and uh, despite the pollution was not cleaned up, uh, despite that environmental problems were not resolved, uh, the tribunal concluded that the contract between Ecuador and Texaco meant that Chevron could not be sued on the basis of the collective dimensions of the right to a healthy environment in the Ecuadorian constitution. The tribunal considered that the government could dispose and did in fact dispose of this constitutional right by a contract. Now, I would comment that uh, the tribunal's decision is not compatible. It doesn't comport with international human rights law or with constitutional law for that matter. This is a largely a commercial frame looking at contract law to 
approach what are public law issues of constitutional human rights uh, theory. A state cannot contract human rights away. Human rights are inalienable. They belong to humans. They belong to the people. The state cannot abrogate human rights, least of all by contract. The notion that a country and a corporation can, in a contract, deprive the people of a state from a basic human right can only be understood by reference to the arbitration as a system for advancing corporate interests at the expense of the rights of peoples. Yeah, wow. A footnote to, to that uh, analysis is that uh, in, the, in the litigation in Ecuador, after uh, Chevron was unsuccessful before the Supreme Court, it seized the Constitutional Court, the Ecuadorian Constitutional Court, arguing a denial of, uh, of due process and other constitutionally protected rights. And it was complaining about the exercise of jurisdiction by Ecuadorian courts. But the Constitutional Court plainly concluded that in a contract, the government cannot dispose of rights it does not have. The right to a healthy environment is a right of all persons subject to Ecuador's jurisdiction, the, the court uh, recent, uh, and the government cannot contract it away. What are some of the implications of this? Uh, one could comment that, um, that it was expedient, perhaps, to, for the tribunal to interpret the, the right to a healthy environment in Ecuador's constitution in a manner that, uh, that shielded uh, Chevron from liability, that released it from any claims. Otherwise, uh, the tribunal may have had to look at the environmental realities in Ecuador, the, the lack of remediation, the, the ongoing contamination, the fact that dirt was moved from pits, that certain pits that had been covered up are still leaking, that communities, many communities are still without adequate food, without adequate water, and so forth. Um, that is something that Chevron has worked very hard to avoid in this case. And I would say that Chevron has largely succeeded. It has largely succeeded in making this case story about uh, the plaintiff's lawyers, uh, about uh, Stephen Donziger. But I, I think it's important not to forget what this case is, is really about. Uh, if, if we recall, the, the indigenous peoples in the Amazon, the Warani, the, the Kofan, other indigenous peoples, they lived in a pristine rainforest environment prior to the arrival of, uh, of Texaco and, and the oil boom in, in, in Ecuador in the 1960s and, and early 1970s. The extraction of oil by Texaco and uh, Petro-Ecuador was without regard to the protection of the environment. It was without regard to the rights of affected indigenous peoples. First operated by Texaco, as I mentioned, and then taken over by Petro-Ecuador, oil operations severely impacted indigenous peoples' traditional lands. The, the oil boom in Ecuador has imposed loss of life, health, territory, and culture. Indigenous peoples have not received reparation for the violation of their rights. The arbitral tribunal concluded this was beyond their mandate and therefore it was not their problem. It is not surprising 
this is not surprising as uh, international investment arbitration focuses on on whether the government has wronged a corporation but not on the environmental damage that may have been caused by that corporation. This imbalance is creating um, deficiencies in the international legal system and this um, this award is a is an example of of that. Can you explain sort of what happens in in a case like this where the international arbitration panel is basically saying, you know, Ecuador, your courts uh, got it wrong. <laughs> like, who? I mean, I guess like who? And and there's like ongoing other, you know, um, legal proceedings happening. What's sort of the hierarchy there? How do those how do those things kind of intersect the the domestic court system? I guess in this case, both in Ecuador and the U.S. and this international panel. Yeah, traditionally in international uh, law, before a claim can be presented by a non-state actor to uh, to an international tribunal there needs to be exhaustion of domestic remedies. This is a term of art that means that uh, uh, a person or a corporation that feels that it has been wronged in order to present a claim first must go to national courts and, uh, and give the state the opportunity to resolve problems before being confronted to an international Claim in investment arbitration. However, there is no requirement, at least not explicitly or typically. There are so many bilateral investment treaties, thousands of them, but typically they don't establish an exhaustion of domestic remedies requirement. What many of these treaties do establish is a is a choice whereby the the investor must choose whether to go the route of national courts or go the route of an investment arbitration. And investors usually choose, uh, they elect the investment arbitration route because there, as I mentioned earlier, they get to appoint one of the typically three arbitrators and they get to choose uh, which arbitral rules will govern the arbitration, which is also uh, relevant for the conduct of proceedings and, and the enforcement of of any award. So that's a particularity in the field where corporations are able to do some forum shopping to advance claims in whichever forum, in whichever way suits their interests best. So when corporations are well endowed uh, with resources and have the ability to hire scores of lawyers, they can really drown plaintiffs in, in litigation that is expensive in, in various forums. It, perhaps an example can illustrate it. A few years ago, Bechtel acquired a water concession in, in one of the poorest countries in, in, in Latin America, Bolivia, in the city of, of Cochabamba. And, and soon after taking over the, the water concession, it raised prices exponentially. It even began collecting water uh, fees from water taken from wells that had been constructed by communities. Uh, so the concession, it was expected that Bechtel would invest capital to increase coverage and secure uh, access to water, but instead uh, it began collecting a, like a very high feast for, for water. And so there were 
water revolts, uh, so-called, the, the, in Cochabamba, the, the community mobilized, and eventually the government uh, decided that it had to take back the, uh, the utility. And at that time, Bechtel brought an arbitral lawsuit against Bolivia, but not as a U.S. corporation. It was under a Dutch-Bolivia bilateral investment treaty. So it, it claimed that it was a company from the Netherlands, and on that basis, uh, it could sue Bolivia. Uh, the tribunal sided with Bechtel and allowed the case to proceed. So how common are these um, parallel legal proceedings? How common is forum shopping? Quite common, unfortunately. Okay, and then I know that there are various kind of guidelines that govern these proceedings. Can you just t- talk a little bit about that? Like that, I, I don't expect you to run down, you know, the specifics of of all the different batches of rules, but h- how is it decided sort of which set of guidelines a, a tribunal is going to go with? And then what happens with the verdict in one of these arbitration cases? How, you know, is there an appeal process? Right, right. So if we compare the, the process with domestic courts, uh, the in domestic courts, there's, well, civil procedure or criminal procedure. There are laws that govern the process, and they provide all kinds of safeguards. The analogy in the arbitration system are the arbitral rules. Those arbitral rules are the the rules that govern the process. Who gets to speak when, what are the authorities of the arbitrators, uh, and they also govern what happens at the end, the decision, the award, enforcement, and, and so forth. Uh, an underlying theme in international arbitration is the, the, the quest for finality. Uh, it is understood that the contending parties want to settle their dispute, and it is uh, expected that the award will be final. And so there's there's no appeal uh, to uh, investment uh, decisions. Uh, again, the arbitral rules will govern the, the specifics. For example, under the, um, the, the Chevron Ecuador case, this was uh, heard under the, the rules of the UN Commission on International Trade Law. This is, uh, these are rules that have been designed for commercial disputes, uh, not for the kind of denial of justice, which are public disputes, public law disputes. Uh, and so the, the issues of secrecy uh, in commercial disputes uh, may be warranted in those frames, but when it comes to public law, they're wholly inadequate. Uh, the ancestral rules, they rely on the New York Convention. There's a New York Convention for the enforcement, for the recognition and enforcement of arbitral awards. And that convention gives some authority to national courts in terms of recognition and, and enforcement. But at the same time, that authority is very limited and, and courts, they are they usually they give deference to the awards because of the need for finality, uh, they can set aside, they can um, strike down an award if there has been corruption, if, they, if there is a clear violation of public policy. But for the most, national courts are quite reluctant to set aside or, or strike down awards. Uh, so that, that's, those are the procedural rules that uh, were applied in, in this case. There are other sets of rules by the, the Paris 
International Chambers or or the World Bank's uh, investment facility. Uh, th- those those rules, for example, the World Bank's, they exclude the, the, the it's a totally safe, self-contained. It's a, they exclude the role of national courts. They provide for procedures for annulment in case, again, that uh, a party has not been heard or there has been corruption or, or, or so forth. But um, those procedures for annulment, they don't review the merits. They, they don't get into whether the decision is right or wrong, whether the law has been properly applied. They get into other um, other causes or other situations that may affect the integrity of the process but not the quality of uh, of the decision. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, when the uh, when the investor receives a favorable award uh, under the New York Convention, uh, all states that are parties to that convention are required to honor that award, um, and that is, that means that uh, that the in practice that the Chevron uh, Ecuador arbitral award uh, directing Ecuador uh, to uh, make to try to uh, avoid enforcement of uh, the decisions in uh, of its national courts that may have an influence in any country party to the New York Convention, any jurisdiction where the plaintiffs are trying to enforce that uh, that judgment. Uh, so it may be at the end very hard for the for the plaintiffs to uh, to collect damages on uh, on that decision. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Damages is an original Critical Frequency production. Our editor and senior producer is Sarah Ventry. Mixing and mastering by Mark Bush. The show is written and reported by me, Amy Westervelt, with additional reporting by Karen Savage, Meg Duff, and Lyndall Rollins. Our fact checker is Wudan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton of the First Amendment Project. Our theme song this season is Bird in the Hand by Forenown. Artwork is by Matthew Fleming. The show is supported in part by a generous grant from the File Foundation. If you'd like to support our work, please rate or review the podcast wherever you're listening and share it with friends. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.